This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app so you can listen wherever you are, and you can access all the other Times and Sunday Times podcasts. And if you ever want to get in touch about anything you listen to on the podcast, you want to have a moan about something, or you want to tell me I'm excellent, uh, get in touch. You can email me, matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio. be nice to hear from you. And actually, while you're getting in touch, do you know who this is? I think I'd have to wear a bag over my head. I think I'd have to wear a bag over my head. Yes, the Mystery Voice competition is called Vox Pop. We do it every Thursday on my Times Radio show. If you want to come on the radio and tell us who you think it is, email me, matt at times.radio. We'll get you on next week. Right, coming up on today's episode then, it's back. It's our monthly Times Radio focus group. Former number 10 pollster James Johnson in the hot seat with some swing voters telling us what they think of Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson's defence. It's well worth a listen. It's coming up in just a sec. But first... It's today's columnist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, and we are joined by Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Hello, I love the sting. I know, it's good, isn't it? And it's because uh, every week, Manvi will be joined by a different person called Matthew. And this week, it is Matthew Powis. Morning, Matthew. <laughs> good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you both here. This is nice. Uh, nice on a Thursday morning. Now, um, let's talk about uh, taking out the trash. Rishi Sunak choosing yesterday of all days. I don't know why it would have occurred to him. Uh, <laughs> yesterday of all days to publish his tax return, uh, revealing that he paid more than a million pounds in UK tax over the last three years. Here's what he's had to say about it. Well, I published my tax returns because I said I would in the interest of transparency and I'm glad to have done that. Now, I think what ultimately what people are interested in is what I'm going to do for them. And, you know, you talk about the cost of living, of course that's the number one priority that I've got, that I'm grappling with. Now, it didn't necessarily work if he was hoping he was going to cover things up because it's on the front of the Mirror, it's on the front of the Times, uh, it's on the front of lots of the papers, uh, albeit uh, Boris Johnson uh, slightly dominating. It's a bit of an American import, this, isn't it? Uh, Matthew, having to see the Prime Minister's tax returns? Uh, no, it's a Norwegian. Is import. it? Yes. Uh, everybody's tax returns are in the public domain in Norway. The Inland Revenue, or the Norwegian equivalent of HMRC, 
uh, simply publishes or makes available everybody's tax return. So you can find out what your neighbor paid, uh, what your father or mother paid. It's it's all completely in the public domain. I think it's a bit unfair on, on Rishi Sunak to suggest that he's trying to hide this. He's actually the first prime minister, as far as I know, who has ever published his tax return. And I think it's a very good idea. He, I think he made about five million in the last three years. I, I believe Boris Johnson has made about three million in the in the last few months with his with his speeches. So actually, it, it appears to me that Sunak is earning rather less uh, than I thought he would have been. I think David Cameron might have published his. Mm. Um, did he? Did he? Yes. Uh, and then, Jer- from memory, Jeremy Corbyn published his. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, and then it turned out he he'd had to pay a fine. Basically, they revealed he'd published them to try and force. I think it was Boris Johnson or someone to release them. And then it turned out he'd um, not filled them in properly or something, and he'd he'd ended up having to pay a fine, uh, which was not the the best uh, thing. Uh, Manfred, does it make any difference? We know that Rishi Sunak is an incredibly wealthy man. Um, it's not a huge surprise then that he pays a lot of tax. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think people had factored that in already. We know he and his wife are extraordinarily wealthy, but I think it does matter, and it's because. For me, you know, when I looked at the tax return, I sort of thought immediately of the um, budgets we'd had when Rishi Sunak was a chancellor. And, you know, national insurance went up, which meant that everybody was paying more on their income. For him, that doesn't really matter. His income as even prime minister is such a tiny proportion of how much he earns um, that, you know, raising that a little bit doesn't matter. He didn't very deliberately um, raise... Do you remember there was even a fuss where everyone thought he was going to raise capital gains tax at the time uh, he was being advised to and he didn't? And actually, because of capital gains tax and the way he's sort of working out his shares, he's paying about 22%, I think, on this extraordinary sum, um, uh, you know, the the, the millions of pounds, which I think a lot of people will look at and think, well, hang on, that doesn't sound quite fair. You know, it it is a lot of money, which I know we'd factored in, but people who are in very high-powered, difficult, stressful jobs who are earning similar amounts will be paying far more in tax. He's he's earned that in a blind trust the way he hasn't had to do a single thing mm. and yet he's paying less tax. And I think but, stuff like that does matter and I think it will rile people. How about, how about the rest of us then, uh, Manreen? People, we too are in public life in a way. Uh, we have pulpits of our own. You and I are in our pulpits at, at the moment. Ought we to publish our tax returns so that our readers uh, or, or, or viewers or listeners can can see how much more we might be earning than them? Well, look, as, uh, personally, as a journalist, I'm all for transparency. I sort of think that's a great idea. <laughs> I, I, mm. I quite like the Norwegian model. I think we'd have problems mm. here because privacy laws and GDPR have actually been moving us steadily in the opposite direction. But I, I, I think it's great. I think it's great to be able to sort of see... Um, you know, in a way, it helps you to sort of understand what motivates people, I think. Um, and I just think it sort of means that people are much less likely to look for loopholes, for example, if everyone can see the way you're paying your tax. Mm. So I'd, I'd be all for that. Actually, I, I know that's probably very unpopular. <laughs> I no, <think>. I agree. <laughs> and actually, somebody's just messaged in saying at least Sunat paid his tax, unlike his mate Zahawi. And actually, the point, I suppose there's two things, isn't it? One, to make mm. sure that it's all above board, which this seems to be. Um and obviously reveals that he's he's incredibly wealthy. But maybe this cuts both ways, Matthew. That actually, we'll hear from our focus group a bit later on, where we get a little bit of this. And people say, well, look, he's well off, just own it. We know that he is. At least he's not motivated by 
uh, by money or dodgy deals or, you know, nobody's going to accuse him of uh, of trying to give himself a, a, a PPE contract or lining his own pockets on the side or, or having to ask the chairman of the BBC to set up a loan for him. Oh, I agree with that. Uh, all this, oh, Rishi is so wealthy stuff is a, is, is a complete waste of time. We, we say, oh, how can he understand the problems of the very poor because he's very rich? How can we understand the problems of the very poor because we are so much richer than them? The difference in the way that Rishi Sunak lives, his lifestyle, and yours or my lifestyle, is very much smaller than the difference in the way you or I live and the way people who are really on the breadline live. Uh, These gradations at at the top level, and we are all at the top level, these gradations are relatively unimportant. Yeah, that actually, you know, although he clearly earns a lot, lot more money than me, my life is far more like Rishi Sunak's than it is somebody who's really struggling, and that's that's a really important um, uh, point. And then the the other point that you you were touching on, Manveen, the the capital gains versus income tax. The Labour Party, well, um, Angela Rayner said uh, that this reveals a tax system designed by successive Tory governments in which the Prime Minister pays a far lower tax rate than working people who face the highest tax burden in 70 years. But then Yvette Cooper has been pressed on that this morning. So, well, is Labour saying it will bring the two uh, in line, capital gains in line with income tax? And they're not saying that at all. So either you think there's a terrible business and therefore you're going to equalise them, or you're going to stick with it, in which case this isn't a stick that you can beat Rishi Sunak with. I just, I think it's interesting. It sort of feels like, um, you know, I don't know where Labour's going to go on this, no idea. But I do think generationally there's a bit of a shift because... In the past, people were, you know, that there are there are very good reasons why capital gains tax is lower. It's usually because, you know, you've taxed um, the income that has gone into buying the cap, you know, the investing in capital, effectively or holding it as an asset of some sort. I just think you've now got a generation of people who are much less likely to be homeowners, who are much less likely to have huge assets um, that they, you know, they are going to benefit from selling at some point. And it just feels like actually the tax burden is now, you know, it's it's still being tightened around people who are. Uh, on incomes which often don't allow them to be buying assets and something might have to shift. It feels like the balance is off at the moment um, just because you've got, you know, millennials are are much less likely to be homeowners um, into, you know, until they're sort of way beyond 40 probably. And, and I think that that sort of feels like it's, we need to sort of shift the tax burden to reflect it in some way. Well, let's move on to the Labour Party now, then, because this morning Keir Starmer is making another big announcement. He's making a speech where he's promising to cut serious violent crime in half, half violence against women and girls. Uh, this is him speaking just literally a couple of minutes ago in Stoke. Nothing is more important, more fundamental to a democracy like ours. The rule of law is the foundation for everything. Margaret Thatcher called it the first duty of government, and she was right about that an expression of individual liberty, our rights and responsibilities, but also justice, fairness, equality, one rule for all. That's the principle I've been proud to serve all my adult life. So he's given himself a decade to meet this target. Uh, He's obviously had, uh, it's all part of his missions. We've had his five missions. Uh, Rishi Sunak's got his five promises. Do you think these big promises work, uh, Matthew? Halving... Having a uh, an unspecified number over the next ten years is that the sort of thing that lands with voters? Well, and and, and will in ten years' time, were you and I on on this program together again? Will we be saying, "Oh, this is the day. It's ten years since <laughs> what has happened." It, it'll all be forgotten within a, a few weeks. 
Leaders of the opposition have to make speeches about something, and so <laughs> he makes a speech about this, but I don't think anyone takes it very seriously. I suppose the, the, the criticism of uh, uh, Keir Starmer, we get it all the time with the focus groups about Veen, is all he does is complain, he hasn't got any of his own <laughs> ideas, and then he announces an idea, and then we say... Well, who's interested in that? That's a waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's a tough gig, I guess. I thought it was interesting, though, to hear him quoting Margaret Thatcher. That's unusual for a Labour leader. Uh, And it does sort of have echoes of Blair, you know, with his sort of Mm. tough on crime and the causes of crime. Um, I sort of thought it was quite a clever move in some ways because I think there is such, you know, there was such visceral anger when the Louise Casey report Mm. came out, particularly sort of, you know, for women all over the country, even though it was sort of, you know, the the Met that was mainly... uh, um, you know, covered in, in that report. And I think what he's he's doing is sort of trying to channel that, harness that anger and sort of turn it on, uh, you know, onto, onto government faults rather than just focusing on the police force, sort of, you know, taking the, the bigger picture of this is as a result of government cuts or, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if it's entirely fair. You know, the, yeah, yeah. the Met, uh, you know, uh, Sadiq Khan has, has had more oversight probably on what's happening at the Met or as much uh, as as the Home Office. Um, but, you know, he is right that the, that, National conviction rates on on a lot of the crimes against women, whether it's rape or domestic violence, are are very low. Yeah. So if he's genuinely going to focus policy on that, I think that would be no bad thing. But you know, is is that enough to actually change violence against women? Probably not. There are so many other social factors which he doesn't even talk about. So yeah, knows, and that really needs fleshing out. Just setting a target, and then and then I think yeah. even Yvette Cooper this morning was saying, "We'll work, we'll work through. We're going to speak to some experts about how we meet it." That seems a little bit possibly back to front. Go on then, we should probably turn our attention to uh, Boris Johnson. Um, You thought that Boris acquitted himself well and he's completely in the clear, Matthew? No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) You you guessed wrong. He looked looked like an animal, so to speak, a hunted hunted down animal. He really looked quite defeated, I, I thought, and he was casting around all over the place and nobody believes all this stuff about how you had to have leaving parties at Downing Street and how the rules or rather the the guidance didn't exactly say that you Mm. couldn't be closer than a metre or whatever it was to 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 the next person it 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 was a a a pretty pathetic performance I I thought but I I'm not sure that he minds. I, I have the strange feeling that he wants to be the victim yeah. of all this. I have the strange feeling that he would actually like to be thrown out of his constituency and go out with his head, as it were, held high, and his believers, and there are, there are still plenty of them, saying that, that he has been martyred. It's interesting. What did you make of it, Manvi? Yeah, I mean, I thought he came across as, uh, you know, very angry, quite sort of rattled. Um, and he didn't really present, for me anyway, uh, a convincing ex- explanation of it all. And I thought the moment that was really interesting was just watching the Tory MPs on the committee who didn't seem particularly convinced either. Uh, and the most devastating part was the questions that sort of seemed to come, you know, sort of out of sorrow more than anger, where it was just like, God, you, you know, you really have made a mess of this. So, you know, I'd be surprised if they didn't find that he had, um, you know, if there wasn't some kind of sanction at the end of it. Uh, I also thought it was fascinating, though. I I don't know if you sort of saw in the Times this morning, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been out defending him and, you know, described his behaviour at the committee as cool as a cucumber, which I don't think anyone else did. Um, But then sort of tried to explain his answers by sort of saying um, it was 
the truth as he perceived it, which seems you know felt very oh, close wow. to my truth, which, <laughs> you know, which is sort of, very yeah, very the proponents of a big culture war against exactly that phrase. I thought yeah, was very yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, in fact, it turns out uh, Boris Johnson is not the only one who may have misled Parliament. The, the full fact uh, charity, fact checker charity, full fact um, has been looking into this. Glenn Tarman is from Full Fact. Morning, Glenn. Good morning, Matt. So, how many MPs do you think misled Parliament last year? Of those that we fact-checked, there was over 50 MPs. Wow. And that included two prime ministers, cabinet ministers, shadow cabinet ministers, as well as uh, your more rank-and-file MP from, from across the different parties. And what counts as misleading? Well, that can be um, getting your facts wrong. Um, and we challenge where we think the facts are wrong, uh, we challenge the politician to back up what they say with evidence. Um, and if they can't back it up, and it's a factual claim, not a, a view or an opinion, uh, they should correct their mistakes. And um, the ministerial code for ministers says they should do that. That's what they're obliged to do. Um, MPs are also obliged to be uh, honest. Uh, they've got uh, less mechanisms to be able to correct the record in Parliament, and we want that changed. But there's there's a problem here that's uh, much more widespread than one politician and one inquiry that we've got live at the moment. So um, how serious are these things? Because is it someone, is it slip of the tongue or, you know, Rishi Sunak at PMQs having all sorts of things thrown at him, says, oh, it was in 2020 and actually something happened in 2021. Are they materially, you know, do they materially change uh, debate or are they are they just, you know, are you nitpicking, I suppose, is the point I'm getting at? Well, sometimes they, these are small mistakes and they're not something we would necessarily fact check. But for example, it's the existing, uh, the, the prime minister we have now, for example, made a, a claim about the Labour Party, he said they're being bankrolled by just stop oil. We can't find any evidence of this. And so these kind of claims, they're really important. If the prime minister can't back up what he's saying about a political opponent, um, then it, it may very well not be true. And these things do colour the opinion of politicians, their policies, and particularly coming up to election, um, what the electorate, you know, are the electorate going to be provided yeah, yeah. with information to make a choice? Well, right? I think in that, I think in the Just Up Oil case, wasn't it? There's a, somebody had given Just Up Oil a lot of money in support of Just Up Oil had given Labour £360,000. But let's not get bogged out of that. Matthew, when you were an MP, I'm sure you never misled the Commons, did you? I'm absolutely sure that I, I must have. I can barely open <laughs> open my mouth or pick up my laptop without committing some kind of a factual error. Fortunately, my readers generally point out the mistakes that I've made on, online. Uh, no, it, it, if, if every member of parliament had to stand up and uh, correct the record on everything that they had said that turned out not to be right, you'd find that Parliament was spending about three quarters of its time <laughs> correcting what it had said during about a quarter sure. of its time. Manveen Rana and Matthew Powerstone. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, including on the Times Radio app. And Matthew Powers, you can read him in the Times every Saturday, alongside my column as well. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the Focus Group. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, it's the very latest Times Radio Focus Group. Every month, we ask a panel of swing voters to give us their assessment and their own words on how the government and the opposition are doing to sit alongside opinion polling, uh, which doesn't always give us the full picture. And we find out what matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, in the hot seat, asking them the questions was James Johnson from Jail Partners, former number 10 pollster, uh, but he's much better now. James, how are you? Good morning. Very well, thanks, Matt. Well, uh, let's start, uh, as we always do, with our explanation of what a focus group is, what it isn't, and a particular uh, answer to the person who's uh, already been in touch saying it's pointless without quant. Excellent, excellent. So key thing is, is a focus group is not meant to be a poll. Um, it's a small group of people, six to eight people, recruited on a specific basis. Um, people we're talking to today, uh, we're back to our usual uh, recruit, which is people who are a mix of people who voted Conservative and Labour in 2019, uh, who are now undecided. Um, they're from across the country, uh, Hayward and Milton, Hastings and Rye, and Wolverhampton. So a range of seats and locations, uh, which are going to be very important at the next election. And the key thing is, it's not intended to say this is what the country thinks. This is what this group of people across the country think. This is what Wolverhampton thinks. It's there to dig deeper into some of the findings in the polls. We know that a lot of Conservative 2019 voters are saying they don't know how they'd vote now. This digs a little deeper into why that might be. And crucially, sometimes, you know, because we've been doing it, I mean, obviously, focus groups have existed before Times Radio, but, you know, they're the, only the ones that we do matter. Uh, crucially, they quite often give us a bit of a flavour of, you know, sometimes we start picking up a slight shift in mood in these groups, and then that starts feeding into, 
into the opinion polling. I was just actually looking at the, the most recent YouGov poll for the Times. Uh, 23% of people who voted Conservative in 2019 now say they're undecided. 10% of Labour voters, 16% of Lib Dem voters. So a, a, a decent old chunk. I mean, overall, it's one in five voters currently say they don't know who they'd vote for. Uh, in a in a general election, so there's a there's clearly a big old chunk of people who are who are up for grabs. Uh, right, let's jump in then, uh, James. As we always do, as a sort of opening gambit, we just asked them, "How do you think the government's doing?" Bit of a shambles over the last twelve months or so. Changes in prime minister. Although I would say I do think now they do feel and sound like they've got a bit of competency at the head of it with the Sunak and whatever. Not not lost all hope yet with them. There was a period of chaos, in my opinion. But yeah, I'd say they have levelled out a little bit, but just the rising costs of as a single parent. So I'm not that confident in them at the minute. I'm quite happy with, with, with how she's actually getting things together. If you'd asked 10 months ago, it was absolutely awful. It's all right now, it's getting there. Better than the past couple of years, but lost a lot of confidence. I think it's pretty been pretty embarrassing. And financially, we're at the worst ever for decades. I think after what's happened, I haven't got much hope in it now. It just seems to be that we are the ones who are like forking out the bills for everything, like the energy prices are going up and it's us that's having to pay. They're doing better than what they were. I think they're promising lots and it's maybe coming along little bit by little bit. I don't think they're doing great. There's not a lot of confidence. I think they say they're going to do one thing and then do something else. I think with like the whole COVID scandal, we had to abide by the rules and they didn't because they thought that they didn't have to. James, what's really... Well, first of all, Twitter will be going mad and say, where do you find these people? Uh, it's outrageous that you've got people with views that are different to mine. But um, really interestingly, and I know you've picked out this um, when we spoke before uh, you came on, they're starting to talk about all of the troubles the Tories have had in the past tense, that there was that crisis and now something else is happening. And that's that's quite a big shift, isn't it? Yeah, that's certainly new when we did this in January, February. Um, people very much talking about that in the present tense. It's all a disaster. They're all a shambles. They are talking about it in the past tense now. Now, for some, that, that lack of confidence they experienced then still matters now. So for some, they've sort of given up on the whole the whole project of the Conservatives because they think that was just such, such a bad uh, bit of turmoil. Whereas for others, as you hear there, they're willing to give them another chance. So it still matters to people's vote, um, but it certainly seems to be shifting. The big question is whether, you know, if Rishi Sunak can keep levelling the ship for another year, whether that lack of confidence will matter even less. I think going by what we've heard this month, and compared to how drastically that, that different that is compared to what we've heard in the past, there may well be a chance of him doing that. It's interesting. Again, this isn't a poll, but it's just you know it's just what people are are saying. Right, let's um, dig in a bit more then to what they were saying about uh, Rishi Sunak. When you asked them to sum up the Prime Minister, rather than the government, rather than the Conservative Party, but Rishi Sunak himself summed up in a few words. I think he's pretty sensible. He's got a lot to put right, and yeah. not a lot, and not a lot of money, and not a lot of time to do it. Competent, astute, financial, and control. Level-headed. Good with figures. Comes across very confident and he's done very well in COVID. He looks and sounds a good politician. I think he's pretty sensible. Sensible, slightly out of touch. He wants to do the best that he can do. That's the impression I get from him. Sensible. What a contrast to some of his predecessors. 
Indeed, look, I think you're punching the air if you're Rishi Sunak hearing that. Um, there is a little bit of concern about him being out of touch. Uh, that did come through. Um, for some, that was a, sort of a barrier enough to vote not to vote for him. But for most, the bigger issue was whether he was competent and whether he could get the job done. And people broadly think that that is the case. So we see what we see in the polls. Negative view of the Conservatives as a whole, because they're still sort of bruised from the chaos of last year. But very positive views of Rishi Sunak. Um, obviously, we don't see very positive views in the polls of Rishi Sunak. We see about net neutral or just even net negative. Um, but the difference between the two is is very stark. Um, and we can see that playing out there. It's worth saying that just very briefly, that those who felt he was out of touch, when we asked into a little bit more about that, um, someone mentioned the soup kitchen uh, gaffe from Christmas Eve. Some mentioned the fact they had a swimming pool. Um, but actually, when we asked what they, what they thought Rishi Sunak should do about that, they said, I'd rather he just embraced it. In fact, I think, know, we've got, we've got, I think we've got oh, that brilliant, clip, James. Brilliant. Let's just take a listen. So we should point out this was Tuesday night. So this was before Rishi Sunak released his his tax returns. So, you know, which I suspect has only, only pushed this slightly up in uh, people's minds. Uh, but this is when you ask him specifically if uh, Rishi Sunak's wealthy background is a negative. People are struggling to pay their energy bills and he's getting an additional grid network into his house for his swimming pool. There was the whole scandal with his wife as well. Obviously, the, the billionaires aren't they, in the whole um, tax evasion thing. I think he doesn't know what it's like every day for us. And I think also he said, like, oh, yeah, I do take my kids to McDonald's. So I feel like he tries to relate, but... Not really. You can't, you can't win, can you? If you are successful, you're then deemed to be out of touch. I'd rather just embrace it and go, you know what? What I find awkward is when he, it's almost like the teacher at school that tries to be cool by taking his tie off. Just be the teacher then and be the be the up, upside guy that you need to be to get the job done. Really interesting that, uh, James, to sort of own it rather than hiding from it. I do what you do sort of wonder. I mean, it seemed a little bit daft sneaking it out yesterday, although it's not worked because it's all over the front pages. But um, at least it's out there now. Own it. You know, it's now forcing. I think we're just hearing now Keir Starmer said he's going to publish his tax returns uh, today. Um, so, yeah, just own it rather than try to cover it up. I think that's right. People are, the British public are pretty forgiving as long as they don't feel that someone's got of a very different background to them and they're doing things contrary to their own interests you know they're you know very very rich and you know they feel that they're punishing the poor that that's a huge problem um but at the moment they they don't feel that Rishi Sunak is doing that and therefore there's definitely opportunities to lean in yeah it's interesting Mark's been in touch I'm really not a fan of the Tories since Calamity Cameron because that was a long time ago <coughs> but I really don't <laughs> think that, but I really don't think Rishi's wealth is an issue. It's better to have a winner heading up the country, less likely to fiddle the books and everything else around him or her, than having a loser like Bozo Johnson. Really thought Rishi might make a difference, but he's been held back by the Johnson Trust hangover and all their hangers-on. I suppose there is just that sense of maybe that tide turning a little bit. Asking You asked him to rate Rishi Sunak out of 10. He got a 6, a 5, a 6, a 7, a 5, a 7, a 5 and a 6 sort of not bad I mean probably averaging out at a six for Keir Starmer it was a four a three a three a four a four a three a three and a six so he's not rating as well um, so uh, uh, you asked him <laughs> you asked him again about Rishi Sunak's pledges when he became Prime Minister bit of an awkward silence there uh, then a parrot appeared on the focus group so I think it's the first time you've had a parrot isn't it James? It, it is. It is. A parrot sort of flew in and landed on one of our respondents' shoulders. She was expecting it to be there. Don't worry. It wasn't that. Uh, it, wasn't, <laughs> it was actually it was her parrot. Yeah, I don't expect a parrot. Indeed. So then on the on the specifics then, uh, this is what the group said when asked to summarise their feelings about Keir Starmer. He's more of a complainer, not a doer. He doesn't 
seemed to have his own ideas about things. Seems to me like he's a career politician. I don't really know an awful lot about him. It's just a name I know. So I think he has improved the Labour Party image. Uh, I think he's always quite good. He comes across quite statesmanly. He's all right. I don't know an awful lot about him either. Goes against what other people says. It's a little bit backstabbing. One thing just sticks in my mind about him ranting on about Boris and the parties, and then he ended up getting um, a fine himself for the same thing. He's a bit methodical, not much charisma, uninspiring, a bit wooden. He doesn't come across very well. He wants to be as charismatic as Richie Sunak. I'm, I'm sure we can all agree that Richie Sunak's probably more charismatic in front of the cameras than Keir Starmer. I'm not 100% sure what he really stands for. He's just full of hot air. But this feels like we've gone backwards, James. And I know it's different people all the time. And, you know, they are, they're, they're randomly selected by a market research company. But... This, I mean, this feels like things were picking up for, for Keir Starmer a bit and it seems to have gone backwards. They don't know anything about him. All he does is moan. Well, we certainly see that in the polls where in the last month or so, Keir Starmer's approval rating has come down a bit. I mean, it's still pretty good. It's still very good relative to Rishi Sunak's. Um, so I don't think we should read too much into it. But I think what it does show you is that if this election became... Um, in 2024 became a sort of a presidential contest, you know, Keir Starmer versus Rishi Sunak, then Rishi Sunak might be going in with a slightly higher, more of an advantage than the polls might currently suggest. Um, and, you, you know, actually, if we look back at the last two years of focus groups we've done, you know, way back to when Rishi Sunak, uh, when Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, you know, it's a lot of the same complaints that people have. You know, yeah. he just sort of rallies against people, he doesn't have a positive positive definition. So, yeah, you know, there are still struggles struggles with his brand for a lot of these voters. And I suppose it goes back to, we've talked a lot about this before, people say all he does is moan, which is part of the job of the opposition. Then he tries to set out policies, as he's doing today, talking about what he'd like to do on crime and law and order and halving violent crime and so on. Um, but there's not a lot of meat there because we're still possibly a year, year and a half away from a general election. And so and nobody really is interested in him talking about what he might do. So all he ends up doing is acting as a sort of pundit or a talking head on the government's problems. Yeah, I think that people sort of, I think that the big problem for him is that they don't sort of see him as that distinct from Rishi Sunak. So they might have complaints, as we've heard about Rishi Sunak being out of touch, but they don't necessarily feel that Keir Starmer is all that different. And, you know, that also applies to concerns about competence, concerns about policy, whatever it might be. And I think that's the problem. You know, they don't sort of see that distinction for Keir Starmer at the moment. I mean, you know, with the lady there who said um, Boris was caught doing the parties, then Keir Starmer ended up getting a fine himself. Of course, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, Keir Starmer was cleared uh, by by the Durham police. (laughs) But that has, you know, a garbled version of that story has made made its way through to some voters. And that also entrenches that feeling that he's not really that different. So that's what they think of the two party leaders. Right, let's turn our attention to the budget. It was only a week ago. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, But uh, it's always interesting to see how it's landed, which bits the public have noticed, and what they think of Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor having delivered his first budget. So uh, this is what the group had to say about the budget. He does appear to uh, be wanting to grow the economy and and build it back up. But I do think it was also quite empty. There wasn't much depth to it. Even though there was a an appearance of benefiting 
the general masses, the people that would that would benefit most are going to be like the top five percent earners in the country. And I don't, I don't like Jeremy Hunt one bit. Jeremy Hunt is a slime ball. I think he is not fit for purpose for this government. I think he's a bit of a slippery character. But actually, I can't now think of the reason why I think that. He just seems a bit slippery. Not not very trustworthy, maybe. And, and whilst he delivered the budget well last week, it very much felt like it was a Sunak budget delivered by Jeremy Hunt. Some of it felt a little bit gimmicky. So the childcare, whilst it sounded good, doesn't actually start till April 2024. They pretend that they're spanking big business when in reality they're just shuffling a, a little bit about. As for, for Hunt, he comes across as disingenuous to me. Who knew people could have such strong views on Jeremy Hunt's joke? I know. It's not great, is it? I think a lot of it stems back to... When he was health secretary, um, uh, I mean, yeah, one chap there said he couldn't even explain why he, why he felt it. So, um, you and see a bit a, of that kind of I suppose it's a reminder that this you just don't you only get from focus groups rather than uh, rather than looking at opinion polls. That you know how people come across, how long they've been around for. Sometimes the public just take against someone. And we might think, oh, it's terrible. That's all to do with the image of the media, and it's all telly, and it should be about policies. But actually, all of that matters in politics. That's modern politics, yeah. And you know, you you see also the the voters there, some picking up on was this more Rishi's budget than than it was uh, Jeremy Hunt's. I don't think they've they were sort of you know reading that analysis in the Financial Times. I think they've sort of de- detected that a little bit themselves. Yeah. Which uh, you know sometimes the public can be can be quite savvy. Look, that wasn't a, that's clearly not been a, a, a slam dunk budget for the Conservatives. They like some bits, but broadly, as you can see, sort of thought some bits were a bit gimmicky, thought some bits were a bit confusing, um, a little bit empty. I think it's that reminder that come 2024, Conservatives and Labour are going to need to pledge and be seen to be able to deliver big, big sort of big ticket bits of change. Yeah, yeah. You know, This is not just a public that are happy to just sit there and see little incremental improvements. They want to see big and bold vision. They didn't feel that budget was that, was that this time around. Okay, let's turn to the other big political story of the week then. Boris Johnson, up in front of the Privileges Committee yesterday, laying out his his side of the story on Partygate and why he feels he didn't mislead Parliament. Reminder, this was on Tuesday night. Uh, so we had actually, by that point, got all of the written evidence from Boris Johnson. Uh, and you asked the group whether they think he'd misled Parliament. Yes, he's misled Parliament. He knew exactly what he was doing. He said he didn't mean to. So, and because it happened a little while ago, it's kind of all right. He did know what he was doing. He he made the policies. He can't then turn around and say, well, I thought I was doing the right thing. He absolutely knew what he was doing and he absolutely misled Parliament because he wants to get away with it. And then uh, James put to him, uh, put to the group, Boris Johnson's defence, that the events did take place but he was not aware and not told they were outside the rules. I just said, don't believe that at all. Yes, rubbish. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I, I can't, I can't stick up for him on this one. Yeah, it was wrong. What he did, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it, for him to say that? Should have said it at the beginning. Doesn't mean anything now. I mean, a pretty unanimous uh, verdict there, James. Probably the most unanimous on any topic you asked him about. Indeed, excellent bleeping work from Times Radio there. On that, on that first. It's been a while answer. since we've had to get the bleeper out on a focus group. I think, I think it is. I think it is. Um, look, it's a simple fact for the British public on this. You know, if you made the rules, then you knew what the rules were, and any suggestion to the contrary just seems farcical to them. And it, and it's really, it really is just that simple. And you know, the other thing about you know this, this group of voters is that this is a group of voters who are capable of 
quite liking Rishi Sunak, not really liking Keir Starmer that much, thinking the budget was a bit rubbish, and also thinking Boris Johnson is 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 lying to them. Um, you know, people have quite complicated, contrary opinions. And on this one, it's just for the British public, a common sense judgment. Um, and so if, if feed all that, if we keep being told, oh, he's incredibly popular with certain people, uh, and there's a route back for him, and he, you know, outside the Westminster bubble and the pages of the Daily Mirror, he's a huge, huge political superstar. Is that still the case? I, I find this constantly baffling. Um, I heard at the start of the, the focus group show, um, you know, the clip of Jacob Rees-Mogg on the news defending it. The more these people go up and defend Boris Johnson, uh, the, the more that the public are, well, having to be bleeped out, quite frankly, in their in their frustration and anger. Um, Boris Johnson hasn't been popular in any constituency since at least January 2022, when the Partygate uh, stuff came out. He's got an approval rating of minus 21 in the Red Wall, which is apparently where he's meant to be so popular. Um, and voters have, voters have moved on. I mean, somebody, somebody said, I think Danny Finkelstein, uh, Times columnist, tweeted last night, you know, imagine if Boris Johnson had have become prime minister again and that committee was while he was PM. And I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, in the wake of the Liz Trust blow to the Tories in the polls, if we were then now in that world... I think we'd be seeing the Conservatives on 15% or so in the polls. Yeah. Because I think people would really just go, well, that's it, you know, this is farcical and it's all over. So I, I think that is a, a mass delusion. Well, I mean, it's a delusion amongst that yeah, actually increasing yeah, yeah. small very number of MPs. <laughs> it's quite a narrow delusion. And I suppose actually the point is, you're right, if he was Prime Minister, all the other stuff, uh, the budget, the uh, Brexit deal... Um, the small boats, the agreement with all of that, well, might not have happened if they had happened. They've all been overshadowed by the circus yesterday. Um, just on the subject of people mounting defences, um, it's worth looking at... <laughs> it's not very often I flag something from the Daily Express. Scott Benson, who was a cheerleader for Boris Johnson, um, in mounting the case for uh, Boris Johnson and why he should be acquitted, says in an unprecedented move, Mr Johnson was asked to stand to take the oath, perhaps designed to evoke the drama of the OJ Simpson trial. I'm not sure if you're trying to mount the defence of Boris Johnson, uh, likening him to OJ Simpson is necessarily, necessarily, and then being acquitted is necessarily the um, uh, the right way to go. Uh, James, uh, let's uh, pull all this together then. Let's forget Boris Johnson for a moment if we can. Uh, you asked him to pick between... Uh, Keir, between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer? I think Rishi Sunak. I just don't think Keir Starmer is doing a particularly good job of holding the government to account. So if he can't do that, he's certainly not going to be any good as a prime minister. I think Rishi Sunak, because he's probably a little bit more down to earth. I'd say Rishi, because he's obviously doing the job now. I think he's done well to stabilise things. And I don't know very much about... Um, the other guy, I can't even remember his name. Rishi, definitely, because he, the way he dealt with COVID, and if you can deal with that situation, you can deal with a lot of situations. If I had to choose, it would be Rishi. Pretty stable, pretty competent, I'd say. That's him as a person, not not as a party. Yeah, same, Rishi. And I just don't like Miss Dharma. I'd also say Rishi, just because he does, out of the two of them, is just a safer pair of hands, I feel. Uh, yeah, Rishi Sunak, proven track record, more statesmanlike, and uninspired by Keir Starmer. Now, this will have, uh, I imagine, people in number 10, because I know they listen, morning, uh, people in number 10 punching the air uh, this morning, James. And uh, uh, presumably, they'll be doing their own focus groups and getting the same sort of feedback. Yeah, now look, worth pointing out that nationally, when you ask this question, Keir Starmer has a small lead on Rishi Sunak. 
So we're not saying, you know, 100% of voters think this, and we're not even saying 100% of swing voters think this. Um, now, when you do dig down into Conservatives who now say they don't know, you do see Rishi Sunak uh, doing better. Um, so we're not saying that this is a definitive view of the public. Yeah. What we are saying is, is that those kind of arguments that people use to justify their choice of Rishi Sunak, stable and competent, safe pair of hands, proven track record, wants to help, they might just give a flavour of the kind of things that people will be thinking about as they go into 2024. And I think, you know, that sense of Rishi Sunak having a plan and direction, which these voters feel as a, compared to Keir Starmer, that's going to be a sort of a key grounding, landing ground, I think, for the Conservatives come next year. So, James, given that you used to do precisely this job, polling and focus groups for Theresa May, would you be suggesting that uh, Rishi Sunak dust off the old strong and stable? Uh, I wouldn't go strong and stable only because I think that is a proof point for why he should then be able to do things that can change the country. And if they just make a stability argument, I think they're going to be in big trouble. They need to do the, how can Rishi Sunak change the country? He's a good politician. He's got a grasp of things. That needs to be their argument. That's why he can do all of this. But look, Matt, I will say that, you know, I've been saying this since January. Um, it's becoming a tiny bit more fashionable now is that I do think that the next election is, is all to play for. And I do think that there are big challenges to the Conservatives, but if they can make that into that presidential race between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, then I don't think we're going to see majorities of 60, 80 again, but I do think we are going to see a competitive race. And actually, because Labour is so far behind, you know, Keir Starmer needs to gain masses more seats, you know, a bigger swing than Tony Blair in 97, and that's to get a majority of one, not a big majority. That, you know, we could end up... I mean, I my personal view at the moment, James, is we end up with a mess of a result where one or other party is the biggest party, but nobody can form a majority, and we probably end up having a second election. Yeah, look, I think I think we're definitely in that kind of territory of hung parliament, very small majorities uh, potentially, um, and yeah, I do think it is all playful. Look, the Conservatives—that's if the Conservatives carry on on the path they are on now. You know, there's very simple; they could very easily mess it up again, and, and and you know, and then that chance will be lost. It's still a narrow path, but I do think that path is there, and I think probably a lot of people feel that it's slightly widened over the last couple of weeks. James, it's absolutely fascinating. One of the favourite things we do uh, on the show. James Johnson, thanks so much for joining us uh, and uh, and bringing us the latest Times Radio Focus Group. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.